listening to the Van Moody Podcast. Our passion is transforming the world by transforming lives. In today's episode, we'll continue our series on race with this week's sermon, Racism and Economics. God is clear about his stance on equal economic opportunity. Let's get started. Hey, happy Sunday, friends. Thanks for joining us on this beautiful Sunday morning. I hope that you're ready to jump into the Word of God. I certainly am excited to share the Word of God with you as we jump into week three of this necessary and needed teaching series. If you haven't already, open your Bibles or your TWC app. Our teaching notes are out there every week for you. And meet me in Matthew chapter 20, beginning at verse number one. Matthew 20 and verse number one. The Word of the Lord says this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again and about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? And they responded and said, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius when they received it. They began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Did you agree to work for denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Friends, this morning we are broadcasting from Citizens Trust Bank. Now, we are broadcasting from this historic bank in downtown Birmingham this morning because as we move into week three of this teaching series on race, truth, and reconciliation, today we're going to look at racism and economics. Now, I shared with you in part two of this series on last week that prejudice plus power equals racism. And we began to look at several of the ways that power has been used historically to marginalize and oppress people of color. But today, we're going to take a closer look. Now, listen, I recognize that there are people who think that racism is a thing of the past. I've often heard from several white people um, things like, well, slavery was such a long time ago and we're past that, or those issues don't exist anymore and racism is no longer an issue in America. Well, 
The clearest indicators that prove that those sentiments are wrong and that prove that racism, prejudice plus power is still very much alive and active. The clearest indicator of that is economics. Black and brown families on average have less than 10% of the net worth and wealth that white families have, even across the same levels of education. Now, what I'm referring to when I say net worth and wealth is financial margin. I'm talking about money left over after bills and expenses are taken care of. For every $100 or so in wealth or net worth that the average white family has, black and brown families barely have $10. Another way to understand this difference is this. For every dollar in wealth or net worth that the average white family has, black and brown families barely have 10 cents. This is why the parable that Jesus teaches in Matthew 20 is so important. Jesus begins this parable by explaining that this is what the kingdom of God is like. Now, that's super important, and we can't rush past that too quickly. The kingdom of God is the reign, the rule, and the way of God. And as believers, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. As believers, the kingdom of God is the ethic and the lifestyle that we commit to when we accept Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. Now, I shared in week one of this series that the kingdom of God is bigger than being a Republican or Democrat. Now, Jesus explains through this parable that God cares about the people who have been marginalized and left out. I love it. At the end of the day, at 5 p.m., the landowner goes out and finds this group standing around and he asks them, why they've been standing around all day. And they respond to him and tell him, well, because no one has hired us. Now get this. Everybody else in this parable had a head start financially. They had the opportunity to work all day. And while this other group has simply been marginalized, this group has not been picked. They have been left out and not given the same opportunities that everyone else has had financially. I need you to see that this is but a picture of black and brown families economically. But notice what the landowner does. The landowner is a picture of God. Even though it's already 5 p.m., which means they only have about an hour to work, he hires those that have been left out. And then when it's time to pay everyone, he pays every person the same amount. So Jesus tells this parable because he wants us to understand that God's heart is for everyone to be given the same opportunities economically. Now, I'm going to share some truths this morning. It may be difficult to digest for my white brothers and sisters, but what I need you to understand is that nothing that I share this morning is about saddling you with white guilt. It's really about helping all of us to understand how prejudice plus power has been used throughout history and continues to be used today to marginalize people of color and violate the will of God. Now, I'm sharing this because we have to come together to work towards equal justice for all the people and to support everyone in their pursuit of the American dream. Now, the best way to understand racism and economics is the game of Monopoly. 
This is one of the games that my family and I play often. And I'm sure you are probably on some level familiar with this game. Every person is given a certain amount of cash at the start of the game. And every time you pass go, you collect more money. And the more money you collect, the more properties and houses and hotels that you're able to buy. The more property and houses and hotels that you own, then the more you control the board. The more you control the board, the more you control the game and you make the most money and you ultimately bankrupt everyone else because at that point you have a monopoly. Well, when it comes to economics in America, white people have had a monopoly. And even if you don't agree with what I just said, because maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, I didn't inherit any money and I just worked hard and made my own way. Well, you at least need to understand that the dice is loaded in your favor. Prejudice plus power has been used throughout history to give white people such a head start economically, very much like the workers who were picked first in the parable in Matthew chapter 20. Now, allow me to explain. I picked the thimble to represent black and brown people in this country because from the moment that we were brought to this country, we were forced into the role of a servant. Now, I picked the boot to represent white people in America, and I'm going to explain more in just a moment. So the first thing we've got to do is start, number one, with slavery. Over 60 million Africans were captured, died, or enslaved through the transatlantic slave trade. So economically, guess what? We were brought here and initially put in jail, and we're not just visiting, right? The value of the free labor for white people in America by, by virtue of the transatlantic slave trade from 1619 to 1865, get this, was $13 trillion. Now, we got to put that number in perspective. $13 trillion was 75% of the United States gross domestic product in 2016. So by far, slavery was the greatest wealth redistribution in American history. So what does that mean? White America goes around the board several times to the tune of collecting $13 trillion. White people are collecting $13 trillion while people of color, we are still in jail economically. Then secondly, we got to talk about the Freedmen's Bank failure. The Freedmen's Bank was incorporated in 1865. It was formed to help former slaves economically transition to freedom. The bank employed former, free, former slaves and provided financial education as well as banking services for the black community. Now, the bank accounts were typically small. Former slaves would deposit their life savings. And when we say life savings, we're talking about maybe five to $50. So we are for a moment out of prison and yes, we're on the board. All right. That's a good thing, right? Now the bank collectively grew. The Freedmen's Bank grew to a point where it ultimately held millions of African-American dollars. And at the high point of the bank, it had 37 branches operating, operating in 17 states, including Washington, D.C. But in 1874, 
senior leaders of the bank, white men engaged in fraud and mismanaged the bank's money. One example of this is a man by the name of Henry Cook, who was a white businessman and a politician who who sat on the bank's board. He approved unsecured loans for his company, and when his company could not repay the loans, guess what? His company went bankrupt, and the bank was devastated. The bank ultimately closed in June of 1874, and get this, more than 60,000 African Americans and organizations lost over $3 million, and they were never made whole. So guess what? African Americans were back in prison financially. Thirdly, we got to talk about Reconstruction. Because during Reconstruction, and by Reconstruction, I'm talking about the post-Civil War uh, period, and that really is about from 1846 to 1928. During Reconstruction, Southern states used their prejudice plus power to create laws designed to re-enslave Black people all over again. They made up laws like vagrancy that would allow law enforcement to simply arrest a black person on the street and put them in prison. Now, once they were in prison, convict leasing would begin. Now, they would begin to lease these prisoners out to companies and landowners, essentially enslaving them all over again. So that means in the South, black people are still imprisoned economically. But this also means, guess what? Countless millions of dollars in free labor for white America. They're making a lot of trips around this monopoly board. And honestly, family, I tried my best this week to try to research exactly how much money white America made during Reconstruction. And unfortunately, no historian has uh, done the complete tally yet. But what I can tell you is this. During this time of Reconstruction, get this, 73% of Alabama's state revenue came from convict leasing. And the overwhelming majority of the workforce for companies like U.S. Steel and others came from convict leasing. So this means that white America makes several trips around this board, collecting money, buying property, and having a monopoly as they go. Yet Romans chapter 13 and verse 7 says that we ought to be living differently. It says, give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Number four, we got to talk about Black Wall Street. Old W. Gurley a wealthy black landowner purchased 40 acres of land in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and named it Greenwood after the town in Mississippi. So that's good news. We got one family on the board. Now, this area grew to become one of the most affluent African-American communities in the United States, really for the early part of the 20th century. Several black businesses and homes made up this area, and it ultimately and affectionately became known as Black Wall Street. So now we've got a few other families of color on the board. So we're trending in the right direction. But wait a minute. The Tulsa race massacre happened. The Tulsa race massacre took place on May 31st and June 1 of 1921. 
Mobs of white residents, most of them deputized and given weapons by city officials, attacked the black residents and the businesses of the Greenwood District in Tulsa, and it was one of the worst race massacres in American history. So thousands of people of color were killed, about 10,000 black people were left homeless, and the financial loss was well over, get this, $32 million. So while progress was made initially, guess what happened? All of it was destroyed. So here we go again. We're back in prison financially. Number five, we got to talk about the Homestead Act. Now, many people are familiar with the concept of affirmative action. Affirmative action is a policy that favors those who tend to suffer from discrimination, especially in relationship to employment and education. Now, there are several people who don't like affirmative action, and they even argue that affirmative action is unfair to white people. But here's the thing. In the late 1800s and even in the early 1900s, there were affirmative action programs that applied only to white people. These programs didn't have anything to do with righting past wrongs. They were designed simply to advance white citizens economically and continue to give them a financial head start. The Homestead Act was one of these programs. Now, this program started really during the Civil War and continued through the 1970s. But just to get a sense of the scale of this program, I want you to get this. Between 1862 and 1934, more than 270 million acres of land, that's basically the size of Texas and California combined. And this land was then taken from the Native Americans and divided into 1.6 million individual homesteads, and the land was given away to white families for the price of a small processing fee. Now, because of prejudice plus power, guess what else they did? They made it very, very, very difficult for African-American families to get any of this land. As a matter of fact, only 0.3% of the total was given to families of color. So we're not even talking about 1%. Now, why is this important? Because during this time, land was the key form of wealth. 46 million white families in America, which is about half of all of the white families in our country, 46 million can trace their roots back to being a Homestead Act land recipient. So not only does this mean that they get several trips around the board, not only does it mean that they get several trips around the board. It also means that land, I'm talking about considerable real estate, boardwalk and park place, if you will, has been given to them. Number six, we have to talk about the New Deal legislation. These affirmative action types of programs for white citizens continued well into the 20th century. As a matter of fact, when FDR created the New Deal relief legislation during the Great Depression, it included several of these programs and departments exclusively for white citizens. For an example, 
there was the National Recovery Administration. Now, this program consistently offered white citizens the first opportunity for new jobs, and it set lower pay scales for black and brown citizens. There was also the Federal Housing Administration. Now, the Federal Housing Administration provided home loans with little or no down payments and at very low interest rates to millions of white families. Yet, it explicitly denied loans to black people to purchase any of the new homes in the rapidly increasing suburbs. If an African-American could get a loan at all, they were only permitted to stay in the inner city neighborhoods that were redlined by the government, banks, and realtors. As a matter of fact, let me pause here for a second to talk about redlining. Come on. Redlining is the practice of drawing geographic lines on a map and limiting where loans can be made based on how the map is drawn. Now, redlining identified neighborhoods as not fit for white people and not fit for investment. And simply put, banks would not give loans to people in these neighborhoods, and subsequently, these neighborhoods would become ghettos, food deserts, or ultimately what we call low-income areas. And redlining still affects communities of color today. For an example, if I were to ask you to describe what you most often see in low-income neighborhoods, what would you say? You might say uh, graffiti, uh, run-down homes, empty storefronts, liquor stores. You, you might even say paycheck, cashing businesses, a lot of trash around the neighborhood, and perhaps even homeless people. Now, here's a question. What institutions have influence or power over these areas? I want you to think about that for a second, because if you think deeply, you may begin to respond that institutions like banks, developers, government officials, healthcare conglomerates, media, real estate brokers, chambers of commerce, and even politicians, and we could go on and name many more. But here is the million-dollar question. Who primarily runs these institutions? In most instances, not in all of them, but in most instances, these institutions are run by white citizens who don't even live in the so-called low-income communities. So now, let's go back to the Monopoly board. So not only has there been land and homes and home loans that were given to white families at low interest rates, Black and brown families were denied access to those same loans, that same land, and they were forced to live in neighborhoods created by redlining. But it was still extremely hard to get a home loan in those redlined neighborhoods because banks deemed those areas as unfit for investment, not to mention that these neighborhoods are low income primarily because the institutions that have power and influence over these neighborhoods are primarily run by white individuals who don't even live in the neighborhoods that they control. I hope I haven't gone too fast. I'm giving you a lot. Stay with me. This is why I chose the boot. 
to represent white America because long before George Floyd, there has been a knee and a foot on the necks of communities of color. More subsidies that invested in the future of white families and excluded people of color continued. An example is number seven, the Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944. Many of us know it as the GI Bill. Now, these benefits were designed to help 16 million Americans involved in war to rebuild their lives. These benefits included school loans, low interest rate mortgages, job training, and unemployment benefits. But just like many of the programs that we've been talking about this morning, prejudice plus power made it very difficult for veterans of color to even gain access to these benefits. Now get this, the total economic benefit of the GI Bill for white veterans is believed to be in the billions, if not trillions of dollars. As a matter of fact, author and historian Ed Hughes says it this way. The scientists and engineers and teachers and thinkers who brought in the information age, who took us to the moon, who waged the Cold War, you name it. All those men and women were educated through the GI Bill. He goes on to say that the GI Bill provided the education for 14 Nobel Prize winners, three Supreme Court justices, three presidents, a dozen senators, and two dozen Pulitzer Prize winners. Now, that's amazing, but it's also unfortunate because all Americans didn't have access to these same programs. What if every American had access to these same programs? How much stronger would our economy be? How much more uh, stable would families be? How many more families would be thriving? But y'all, this is how the game has been played for years. See, all of these practices led to the unprecedented amount of wealth creation almost exclusively for white families. These practices gave white families such a head start economically this is why today a white family has 10 times the wealth of a black and brown family of the same educational level. Today, get this, one in seven white families are millionaires, while only one in 50 black and brown families have ever even reached that status. Now, it cannot be said that the reason that things like, like this are happening or even have happened is because black and brown people are uneducated or lazy or even uninterested. No, just like the workers that were picked last in Matthew 20, we simply need the same opportunities and access that everybody else has been given. Here's what God says about it in Leviticus 19 and verse 13. He says, you shall not rob nor oppress anyone, and you shall pay your hired workers promptly. If something is due to them, don't even keep it overnight. And then he says a little bit more in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, he says it this way. Do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns. 
Pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry out to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. All of these different programs and benefits that have been used throughout history to help white families, but at the same time, were not even allowed to benefit black and brown families. You know what God calls all of this? He calls it simply sin. So what do we do about all of this? Well, that's what we're going to talk about in part two of this message next week. I hope that you will join us. I look forward to it. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Bishop Van Moody. For more information about Van Moody Ministries, please visit vanmoody.org. Thank you for joining us and have a blessed week.